Hello and welcome to Wide Swarm, the podcast that gives you the inside story on how leaders tackle crises. I'm Gavin McGaw, and on this podcast, we aim to furnish you with the learnings behind the headlines so that when the proverbial hits the fan, you can keep things turning. On this episode of White Swan, we're going to be joined by Steve Elworthy, the former international cricketer who now holds a senior role at the England Wales Cricket Board and is chair of the Vitality Netball Super League in the UK. Steve has been in charge of some of the biggest cricketing competitions around. He led the organisation of the hugely successful ICC World Cup that was held in England and Wales in 2019. He really is a brilliant and lovely guy who has been a pleasure to chat to over the years, but particularly a pleasure in this interview in which he talks about his approach to crises and why having a network of contacts really matters when you need support. But before we listen to that, I'm joined by Karen White of National and Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK. Welcome, Karen and Gary. Hey, Gav. Hi, Gav. Now, Steve is a class act. He was an all-rounder on the cricket field, and we chatted about how he's an all-rounder in his professional roles too, bringing marketing, communications, event organisation, commercial expertise, and wide-ranging problem-solving skills with him everywhere he goes. His habits enable him to bring in specialists to help him and his team through difficult situations, understanding how best to integrate that specialist knowledge for the best returns. David Epstein, who we mentioned in the interview, has written a brilliant book called Range about how generalists like Steve triumph in a specialised world. I, for one, am always happier to be on a crisis team led by generalists because I think it really works when they're backed up by specialists. Karen, from your perspective, what works best? Is it the generalist in charge or do you prefer specialists? Yeah, I think one of the observations that I would make is more and more organizations are actually following an incident command system for their emergency response and crisis management, even if it is a reputational issue. And in some cases, our clients are even requiring this certification so that we have a general understanding of the incident command structure, the roles and responsibilities, and how the overall response is working. I think as communicators, and particularly in situations where we're parachuting in as part of an incident response, we have expertise in crisis communications, but it's really important that we're working closely with members of the team who have specialized areas of expertise. I really think it does come down to the type of incident who's going to influence who is around the table. For example, in many incidents, your chief technology officer may not necessarily be a part of your incident response team, But if you have a cyber security incident, there's a very good chance that they're going to be providing that specialized counsel and support. I think overall, though, having the generalists leading your response, you know, they are um, leading in a way that allows them to lend expertise to the overall response and have people feed into them and provide them with the feedback they need for success. Do you agree, Gary? There are two reasons why it makes sense for the person leading a crisis to be a generalist. First, a lot of the role of leading a crisis and managing communications in a crisis is orchestrating the cadence of what needs to be done when. And so it makes sense to have someone in the chair who has a broad overview of all aspects of the organization and from a communications perspective has a good understanding of the different levers to be pulled across earned or owned or paid media. Second, a good generalist knows that they aren't a specialist. And so they listen. And if you have the right team of specialists sitting around the table with them, 
that ensures that the deeper insights and flags are being fed into the decision-making process. The way I think of it is the person at the head of the table needs to be able to ask the right questions. And then the people sitting around the table need to be able to provide the right answers. And that's how you make good decisions. So that's a really interesting point, Gary, because if you've got an ego as that generalist running the team, that's disastrous as well. And David Epstein writes in his uh, book that in a wicked world, relying upon experience from a single domain is not only limiting, it can be disastrous. But I guess it can be the other way as well if an ego is dominating. I think we all agree that we want a wide range of skills around the table, no matter what. But having a leader who is an all-rounder, who gets it and is willing to listen, is real added value. So without further ado, let's hear from a true all-rounder. Each episode of White Swan features an in-depth conversation with a senior figure from the world of business, so we get to learn about their crisis experiences and the lessons you need to hear. And we have got a great guest with us today, a man who is genuinely one of the nicest people in sport, Steve Elworthy, MBE. Steve is the England and Wales Cricket Board's Managing Director of Events and Special Projects. Steve has had an extraordinary career. Originally a graduate in engineering, Steve was an international test cricketer for South Africa. An all-rounder, Steve played first-class county in England for Nottingham and Lancashire. After he retired from playing, he successfully moved into cricket administration. He was tournament director for the inaugural 2020 World Championships in South Africa before joining the England Wheels Cricket Board as their director of marketing and communications. Steve's most recent role was as managing director of the 2019 ICC's Men's Cricket World Cup. Steve and his team delivered a hugely successful event that has been recognised across the globe for its professionalism and that culminated with a spectacular finish at Lords with England lifting the trophy. Steve, welcome to White Swan. Brilliant to be on. Uh, good to see you, Gav. Fantastic to chat to you. Thanks, Steve. Now, you're originally from Zimbabwe and moved to South Africa as a kid to play more cricket. Times weren't easy back then. Um, did you take anything from those tough times into your career? Yeah, I think I took I took a, a, a huge amount from it actually, but it's you don't really realise at the time. You know, I think that's the um, after that uh, incredibly glowing introduction, um, it's a it's slightly embarrassing. But um, you know, I think when you work through your your career and you look back at it, um, you know, there are moments in time which actually define and think and and actually shape the way you. Uh, with the way you behave and the way you perform eventually at the end of the day. And I think every time I made a move, every time the family made a move, it brought new horizons and it opened my eyes, really. Um, you think of the, you know, the, the little town that I was brought up in, in the middle of Zimbabwe, which was, you know, life used to revolve around uh, the home life. It revolved around the sports club um, and the school. There was very much little else happening. Um, and the outside world was just something that didn't really didn't really impact you and I understand why now but uh, you know at the time it was a very very closed community but it was you know it was grounded in family values um, which I think was was something that uh, uh, you know I really cherish and to spend a huge amount of time with all the various sports at the sports club at school and in the outdoors it was just a it was a fantastic life a fantastic upbringing but then, you know, you move from there and you, you know, when I was 18 years old from that, having no, you know, not seen more than probably uh, a couple of thousand people at any one time to move to Johannesburg, which is this massive concrete jungle sprawling metropolis in the middle of South Africa. 
And I remember, you know, driving in, it was, you know, driving in with my, my parents into Johannesburg and you just, the size and scale was just something that just opened my eyes. And then, you know, after 20 years of living in Johannesburg, I popped on a plane and I moved across to to, to London, which again made was just unbelievable in terms of what the city brought. You know, it's a country within a country, really, London, when you think about it. And the thing that really, I suppose there are a couple of things when you think about it from a career point of view. Every move opened my eyes. It made me think more globally. It made me think more about the bigger picture. You can often get into a really myopic view around things. Um, and I think that open diverse culture that London brought was just another uh, step in the development of me as an individual. And I think all of those different elements of growing up and moving from a very small insular little village in the middle of Zimbabwe to now living in one of the greatest cities in the world has definitely shaped me as an individual. And I think that has absolutely helped define and, and make, shape me as an administrator, as a player and as an administrator, um, and, and certainly helped in my career immensely. There's not many people, though, who have been a professional and international sports star in their own right and also been successful in sports administration or business, but you've flourished in the latter. I mean, is it because of those values? I think there are a number of things. And again, this is, you know, I think it's it's a fantastic position to be in, to actually sit back and, and have some time um, and look back at your career and have the moment, have the time to to really think about what makes you tick as an individual. As each each person is, as an individual, has got certain sets of values and certain drivers. And it took me a while to really get to grips with with who I am as a person and what makes me what makes me tick, you know, there's there's personal drive, there's ambition. But when I look back and I see what my cricket career meant to me and what cricket actually did for me as an individual, you know, we, we we talk about it in in broad terms about you know it's an individual sport, but it's a team sport at the same time um, because it is because when you're holding that ball at the beginning of your run up, it's only you against against the batter. It's very individual, but your contribution. Uh, is towards a, a team effort, which is which is absolutely valuable at the end of the day. But I think getting to know yourself is what's important in life. And I think those elements of playing cricket and having a semi-professional career at the same time, because you know when I was playing in South Africa, it it wasn't it wasn't just a professional career. We were moving through the transitional period within South Africa, and I was working Monday to Friday and then playing some professional cricket on the weekend by taking leave. Um, and I think it's those elements of my playing career which really helped define me as an individual. I, I needed to know what made me tick. And I think it's, it's the most incredible thing because cricket is steeped in history and heritage and tradition, and it's centuries old. But as administrators, we have a very short window where we are actually uh, custodians of the game. So, you know, we've got, you know, I've been involved now since 2003 when I retired as as an administrator, um, a couple of years in South Africa and then nearly 12, 13 years here in the UK. And I think that is absolutely key for me is that, you know, it's a very short window in the history and heritage of the sport. But why am I here? What am I here to do? I'm here to make sure that when I leave the sport, I want the sport to be in a better place than when I arrived. Um, And I think it's those things that keep me driving. So what really makes me tick? What gets me up in the morning that I keep on wanting to come back to the sport? 
And I think there's one further element, which some people look at me quite strangely when I mentioned this actually in the past, is that um, uh, although I did play for South Africa and I played four test matches and 38 ODIs, there's a lot always written about me about that I never achieved my full potential. Now sitting back and looking at that and actually analysing my career, it, it hurts quite a lot actually that I think that I never reached my full potential. I could have played so much more. At one point in time, I was always absolutely happy with the fact that, you know what, if I had my cap, I got given one cap to represent my country, I would be happy. But, you know, the point being is that you, you that may not fulfill you as a person, you know what I mean, and the potential as a, as a person. So um, I think that's the thing that really drives me, that I want to make sure that as an administrator, I don't leave anything untapped or any untapped potential. Steve, that's really interesting because you were an all-rounder on the cricket field, but you've also become an all-rounder from what I can see off the cricket field. I mean, you've been a sports star, you've been a, a sort of communication expert, you've been a marketing expert, you get the reputational side of the business and administration side as well as the operational, and you've delivered huge success and been recognized for it with, for instance, the 2019 World Cup uh, and many other things. I mean, do you see yourself as a generalist when it comes to the away from the cricket field as well as an all-rounder on the cricket field? I absolutely do see myself as a generalist in this. And uh, I suppose there's a little bit, as you say, in my career, you always talk about it and bowlers, they all, you can never tell a bowler that he can't bat. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, the point being is actually when cricket started developing and we, the, the game started speeding up and the introduction of 20 over cricket, to be able to perform in all three formats, to be able to bat, bowl and field was absolutely essential. Never mind whatever senior leadership or leadership skills you could bring to the team as a fourth dimension, but actually just as being able to perform all three on the field, you could never be a passenger. And I think there's also a little bit of a clue in my title right now when you see managing director of events and special projects. I seem to have picked up quite a few special projects at the ECB, you know, and, they, and I think that's the point is uh, I think with the general nature of the experience I've gained over the years, as you spoke about there, you know, having run global tournaments, having been marketing communications director, managing director of events at the ECB, you've really got to have a good handle on the structure and understand the business itself. Um, and I think for me, that is those are some of the essential items. So definitely a, a, a generalist. You know, I've picked up one of the bigger projects at the ECB in terms of special projects, which revolves around uh, I'm the ECB executive champion for sustainability in this in, within cricket now, and we're developing a strategic plan for the sustainability of this with the environmental sustainability of the sport so you know that's a it's a huge project with huge scope but i absolutely love it and i, I can't wait to get really and we are we started getting stuck into it but but we really have starting unearthing a, a, a huge amount of potential and stuff we can do as a sport to shift the dial on this but you know i think the really the, the important thing for me coming back to to the work side of it and maybe some of the, the tournaments that I've run and you talk about being a generalist. And one of the key elements that I really realized back in 2000 and probably between 2004 and 2007 in the run into the inaugural World T20 in South Africa, you know, sitting around a, a table negotiating a broadcast deal or negotiating a sponsorship deal with people who were expert negotiators on the other side of the table certainly made me realize that, uh, you know, these are these are not narrow channels you can have discussions in. 
you've got to really understand the breadth and depth of the business, but not only yours, but also uh, the business that is wanting to partner with you. Um, and then it comes when you came to the global tournament. I think the thing that really attracted it to me was it's effectively you start a business from scratch. You build it up into something completely unique. You deliver it and then you shut the business down and then you move on. Um, and I think without understanding every single element of that business, um, which I did at the beginning, I spent hours and hours understanding each element of that business because I, I absolutely felt that if I was going to lead any of these businesses, or I was going to lead any of these tournaments, how could I lead people if I didn't understand the work they were doing? And for me, that was absolutely critical because really what we do and when I'm you sort of you leading one of those businesses, we're actually leading people you're managing and leading people and they are experts in their own field but i needed to understand exactly what they were doing in their field to help them develop help them open up new corridors so that they could improve innovate and they can move tournaments on from one tournament to the next so i think for me being a generalist was was, was essential in the development of me and my career it's uh, it's really interesting because there was a great book by David Epstein back in 2019, Steve, which talked about generalists triumphing in a specialist world. And it sounds like you should be the next case study for the revised book of that. Now, look, this podcast is about crises, Steve. What does a crisis mean to you? How do you define what a crisis is? I've given this a lot of thought, Gav. It's um, it's a, because it's a very interesting question when you think about it in terms of um, whether or not, and I've, I've looked at this now specifically from, from an event or running global tournaments point of view, because I think they're all unique and they're all different depending on what you are looking for. You know, I think it's completely different if you're looking at it from a company, you know, if you're looking at it holistically from a company point of view. But I think f from a, a crisis point of view and what, what crises actually are, what do they mean to me? Well, it means to me anything that is a deviation from the plan. So when you put a plan in place and you build a roadmap towards delivering a tournament, so when you start putting the building blocks of your, your tournament together right at the beginning, at the initial phase, you put that plan together with the aim of building it up, developing it, and then delivering the tournament and then shutting it down and moving on. And through that, you build a plan. And any deviation from that plan in my mind, is a crisis. Now, they all have different levels. You know, it can be something quite simple where maybe somebody said that they were going to give you a decision in a week and they haven't. They've, it takes a month or two. You know, that's not necessarily a crisis. But in fact, it is a crisis because it actually could stop other people within your environment and within your workspace not being able to do their job. So it's about understanding the level of those crises. Two, as we're currently living in right now, something like COVID, which is a massive crisis. So, you know, I think for me, understanding what the crisis for me is a deviation from the plan um, and then defining what they are. Um, you know, I think I've always bracketed them into a number of ways. There's there's financial crisis, there's reputational crisis, and there's operational crisis when it comes to to tournaments. Um, and then what you do is I do is I, I create a effectively a risk register for each one of those and then continually monitor each one of them. And make sure that the top five, because I think you, what you've got to have around this is you've got to have serious, you've got to have risk mitigation, because ultimately what you want to do is you don't want to be blindsided. And I think surprises when it comes to crisis is probably one of the worst things that can happen to you. So if you do not scenario plan, if you do not sit down and think of the darkest days that potentially could come your way, you know, you are going to be surprised by something. 
So I think that scenario planning, understanding what those crises are, having a mitigation plan for it. Um, and then I think what it does then is it just calms the nerves and the fears around if a major crisis does hit you, how you manage and deal with it. So, yeah, there are a number of moving parts to that, but I think they, they, they can be segmented into those three buckets in my mind. Steve, you're actually a very process-oriented guy when you hear you talk that through. Is that because of your sort of engineering degree background? And you've, I know you've done a marketing diploma as well. Is So does that mean you're more process-focused than instinctive in a crisis situation? Yeah, I think I am. I, I tend to go away and process exactly what it is. So I will sit back. I will assess the situation we're in. I will go back into whether it's it's documentation or, or archives or folders or wherever they happen to be about um, thinking about what, what our response possibly would be. But I think you've got to run a process with this stuff because I think what process does is it flattens emotional response. I think there's nothing worse in a crisis than knee-jerk reaction and overreacting emotionally to it because you think the world is coming down around you and you need to react and you need to do something now. And often just an extra half hour or hour of consolidated thinking and understanding exactly what the problem is will allow you to address the issue and probably save you significant either financial, reputational or operational delays or delivery. Um, and I think for me, that is, that is critical. But, uh, you know, it, it, it might be my engineering background. It might be, it also probably comes from, from, from the cricket field. You know, I think, you know, being able to stand at the top of your run-up with your ball in the hand, you've, you've got to go through a process of being able to get to that point. You know, and uh, there's, there's been some frightening times in my career. Nothing worse than, you know, holding that ball at the top of the run-up for the very first time in an international match, being able to bowl it. And what you are relying on is the process you have gone through to get to that point, the hours and hours of muscle memory of spending time in the nets and doing what you do so that when you get into that moment, it becomes muscle memory and you just run in and you do what you need to do. And it's very similarly off, similar off the field in my mind. You've got to run these things time and time again, but you've got to continually assess the horizon. You've got to keep on looking at what's coming over the hill at you. Um, and you've got to be prepared for those, for all of those elements. It's really interesting, again, that you say that, because I've listened to a uh, interview with Nick Faldo, the golfer in the past, where he talked about the breathing exercises he put in place before each shot, in effect, to remove the adrenaline from his system and to focus in. And I guess that's what you're saying, because in sport, you have to have those mechanisms in play to try and focus in on the process rather than allowing anything else to cloud judgment. And you're talking about the same approach in a crisis. Absolutely right. Yeah, I think I do. And, I've, you know, it's happened a number of times. And, you know, I think this is I've done uh, run eight global tournaments now for, for the ICC and been involved in other, as you say, other departments within the ECB um, uh, and Cricket South Africa that have had crises of their own. Um, and I think that the thing that really, the, I suppose, the one element that, that you absolutely have to work on and concentrate on is trying to stay calm. I think there's a there's a real, again, I think as I just previously mentioned, you know, there 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 is a possibly a need sometimes to to react and react quickly and uh, not necessarily have thought the issues through. And I think for me, I take I, I do take time. I tend to get under pressure situations. I tend to get into a very calm state of thinking and planning. I take take myself out of the situation wherever I am. I find somewhere quiet 
I tend to drive actually, funny enough, when I'm when I've got grass and I need to think a little bit more. Uh, I get in the car and I turn off the phone and I and I drive and I think it's one of the the places I, I go to to really think things through. Uh, but it's about being on your own and just having time to actually process because people are relying on you. You know, there's nothing worse than people looking around and seeing somebody who's in charge flustered or or, or not in control. Or even, you know, just that they're calm. It's a reassuring look. It's a reassuring glance. I've got this. Don't worry about it. And you just get on with what you need to do and leave it to me. Um, And that's what you're there for. And you need to, and again, it's about the people. You know, you need to reassure people around you and and not being calm in pressure situations is, I think, is, is, is hugely detrimental. Well, and look, I'm going to come to the World Cup in a moment because I think it's vital that we get into that and how you planned. But before we do, I mean, you came, you said yourself, you came to London, fresh to London. You didn't really know it very well. uh, And you were thrown right into the mix with the ECB, who were at the time facing crises most weeks. uh, And you were in charge of marketing communications there. Um, It must have been tough when you didn't really know anyone. So that sort of mechanism you just talked through for staying calm and getting ahead of it must have hope, sort of helped to you cope. But how else did you deal with that situation of not knowing people in London but facing these crises? You know, I came in in the January of 2008 after having run the World T20 in South Africa in 2007 and was offered a two-year contract to come and do very a very similar role um, because the ECB were hosting the Ashes in 2009, plus they were hosting the World T20. But when I sat down in that office on the first morning, I think it was in the first, probably the second week of January in 2008, I sat down and I thought to myself, I don't even know where to go to buy a sandwich for lunch. Never mind be able to to, to sort out a, a crisis or, or develop a plan or know how to even start developing a plan. You know, I'd just come from, from South Africa, um, as I said, running that World T20. Um, and we had a number of issues with that because we, we were thrown in at the, at the deep end, very last minute. Listen, you're hosting this. You need to get a team together to sort it out. And um, I volunteered for that role, actually. And that was how I ended up in that position. We had a team meeting and, and the chief exec said, we need somebody to, to, to run this. And I just done the broadcast deal. So I said to him, listen, I can do it. I'm running your events for you anyway. So let, let, let me do that. But one thing I had learned during the course of my cricket career and through my semi-professional career, and now particularly through years in administration, is your black book is all powerful. Your network and your, your network of, of connections is just absolutely vital. You know, to a point where we we did have a, a bit of a crisis running into the World T20, where we had a lot of broadcast equipment on our boat coming across from one of our international broadcasters, and it had got caught in a storm. Um, and there were a number of ships that were delayed coming into Durban Harbour. Now, Durban was one of the the venues for the World T20 with Johannesburg and Cape Town, and there was a backlog of 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 ships coming into Durban Harbour, and we were at risk of not getting the equipment into the country in time to be able to set up the international broadcast and it was the power of my network and my my little black book of people that I had connected with for so many years that allowed me to pick up the phone and make a couple of calls to ensure that that equipment got into the country on time that actually the, the, the broadcast equipment was ready and set up in time for the first match in Durban um, and there I am sitting in 
in London in a little office, a couple of meters square, thinking I don't even know where to pop out to go and to go and get a sandwich. But um, you know, I think what I did then was I set about developing my network. And I don't think you know, I don't think my wife saw me for nearly a couple of years there because I didn't. I, there was not one invite that I didn't accept. Uh, people, whether they were invited or we were going to functions, I went to absolutely every single one to try and develop that network of of colleagues and. Gav, I, you know, you and my relationship and you're a colleague through a friend of a friend and we've connected and we've stayed connected through that. And that's just one example. But I think that power of the, the black book and your network is absolutely vital. It's a good lesson for us all, Steve. Now, look, right, let's focus in on the uh, ICC Men's Cricket World Cup in 2019. It was an extraordinary tournament. The world's eyes are always on an event like that. How early did you start working through and preparing for what might happen in a worst case scenario? Well, it, we started planning back in 2013, can you believe? And I think, you know, I'd, I'd run um, the 2007 World T20 in South Africa, then the 2009 in the UK. And then in 2013, we had the Champions Trophy in the UK. We had 2017 Champions Trophy and Women's World Cup in the UK, and then we had the Cricket World Cup in 2019. And we always we were calling it the decade of sport, bookended by two events in 09 and 19. And the one thing that I learned pretty quickly was that every every tournament you were involved in, you wanted to get better and you wanted to improve. You wanted to build on the last one to make sure it was it it, it was getting bigger and better. Now. The West Indies had hosted the World Cup in 07. India had hosted in 2011. New Zealand and Australia were hosting in 2015. And England were hosting in 2019. So again, from a process and a planning point of view, what I thought was the one thing I didn't want to say at the end of the 2019 World Cup was, well, in hindsight, if I'd have known that, we would have done something differently. Now, what I thought about at the time was how was I going to benefit from hindsight, but not necessarily hindsight from my event or the, the, the 19 event. And I thought the only way we could de- de- learn from hindsight was from the 2015 event. So in 2013, I got a small team together and we went across to, um, went across to Australia and New Zealand in, in the February of 2014 which was a year before the start of their tournament in Australia and New Zealand. And we spent a couple of weeks in Australia and New Zealand, and that was to understand where they were in their development, in their planning, in their delivery, uh, in their staffing, in their budgeting, their finance, their venues. And so it was really to get a full scope and a brief of where they were, and particularly around crises as well, where they were in their planning. And the view of understanding that was so that in 2018, a year before the World Cup in England, we would be able to assess their plans against where we were in delivering our event in England and Wales in 2019. But the hindsight piece comes at the end of the tournament where the tournament report is a detailed report about how the tournament was run, the good, the bad, the ugly things to watch out for, things to be aware of. And that's the hindsight piece. So actually then looking at the report and saying, geez, those were massive successes. That was brilliant. I understand that. And that is where they were in 2014. And they ended up with a very successful 
work stream there. But that looked like it didn't work that well. So what do we need to do a year out to plan to make sure that we get it right in the UK? So that was, again, very process driven, but it was trying to use hindsight of the 15 event to build on that event, which was hugely successful to bring that forward to the UK. Clearly, you've got geographical differences um, in terms of flying from Perth to Christchurch, for example, you know, teams. The UK is fantastic from a tournament point of view because you just hop on a bus and in a couple of hours, you're across the country. It's, it's fantastic. So you don't have those massive logistics pieces. But understanding the crisis they were going through, operating in two different countries, state politics, tax systems, uh, import-export duties between two different countries, different financial models, different staffing structures in two different countries. You know, all of those things were part and parcel of us understanding that we would then be able to help uh, deliver the 2019 event. Now, clearly, we sat and thought about all of those events. One of the big things which we discussed, I remember sitting around the boardroom, was bird flu. You know, what happens if there's been a couple of teams can't come? So you work out a process and a plan. Do we play with eight teams because it was a 10-team tournament? Do you play with eight? Do you call it off? Do you postpone it? How do we get teams in? Where are the quarantines? You know, and funny enough, a couple of months later, we've had we had something very similar which affected the whole world but it didn't affect that particular tournament. And you can see tournaments now that are, are, are dealing with those issues and have they having to be postponed, the Olympics being one of them. But, you know, I think just that process, again, just helped understand what they were so that you could put in plan mitigation process that when a crisis did happen, if it did happen, which it did in the World Cup in, in 19, it wasn't without its faults and there were a couple of issues we had to deal with. You know, we had a plan and we had thought about it so that we could react swiftly and quickly to make sure we got across the line when we got to that point. And there's, I mean, so many different stakeholder groups involved in something like this, not only domestically in the UK, but globally as well, that you've got to take into account. How do you get your head around that? Yeah, Gav, I think that's, again, it was another point which I, I've, I, I gave a lot of thought about in the build-up to, build to the World Cup here. Um, because effectively, as an organising committee and appointed to, to run the tournament, you know, we could have put the tournament on and we would have just, we would have run it and we would have filled the grounds and they would have, it would have been fantastic. It's, you know, it's just, it is an amazing country, the UK, to host tournaments. It's just the support and the the, the ethnicity, the diversity, you know, and we, we talk about every team can have a home game because of that diversity is just the most amazing feeling. But, and there's a big but here, you know, that tournament can be delivered, but without any integration with any strategic direction or stakeholder management or work group and can be lost because the one thing that i have seen is you know tournaments come and go and as organizing committees we come and go and about a couple of months after the tournament there was nobody left at cricket world cup and the one thing that did not want to happen was at the end of the world cup was the world cup to be blamed for not leaving a positive legacy for the tournament and the opportunity that this massive milestone in the calendar could give the sport. Because as custodians of the sport, as I mentioned earlier, if we're not in the sport to get more people to play the game, then we shouldn't be in the sport. The whole reason we are here, and I, again, I go back to the 
I see what it's done for me and my family and me playing the sport. And it's just, it's the most fantastic sport. The values that this sport brings is just incredible. So for me, it was about making sure that the, the positive legacy that came out of it. So at the start, what we did was we really need as an organizing committee, I needed to understand. And we sat for months working with the ICC and the ECB, putting to understanding their strategic objectives of what they wanted to achieve for the World Cup. ICC to grow global audience, to grow the development of the sport. How were they going to do that through their digital channels, through their broadcast channels? Could we could we run fan zones in different countries, for example? You know, the ECB, what were the ECB wanting to do? You know, they were, they were just launching Inspiring Generations, um, the South Asian Action Plan. We've got, you know, there were so many fantastic nuggets that, that both organizations had had. But if we couldn't model our World Cup on understanding what their strategic direction and objectives were, we wouldn't be able to hand over to them at the end of the tournament and say, right, this is what the tournament has done from you. Here is the data. Here are the people that have engaged with us. These are the fan zones. These are the million children that we set ourselves a target at that have engaged with the Cricket World Cup under 16s. Over 150,000 have come and watched the World Cup. There's been hundreds of thousands go to the fan zones. We've been engaged with Chance to Shine, with Lord's Taverners. We've had partnerships strategic with them to actually get cricket to a million kids that that actually understood and have picked up a bat that had a World Cup logo on it or were in, in school. So we had schools programs. So all of those elements of engaging and actually putting together the strategic plan and direction was absolutely critical for me. And that stakeholder management piece showed the success of it um, at the end of the day where we did. We had over a million kids and I think the globe, ICC Global Broadcast and Development Reach was just off the charts as well. So um, I think absolutely essential to all tournaments. That's great to hear, Steve. And I want to take you back to the last day of that tournament, the final at Lords, um, the Super Over, Ben Stokes heroics. And I was lucky enough to be there. And, you know, I'll never forget it. It was just mental, the whole thing. It was just out of this world in terms of a sporting experience. But everyone who looks in at these things sees that and thinks, oh, it must be brilliant to work on these things, must be brilliant fun. But Talk me through to your mindset the last day. You know, the world's eyes are on you. Every television camera is focused in on this tournament and it finishing successfully or not. There's a lot of pressure, isn't there? Oh, this, yeah, it was, it was, I think the pressure was, was just unbelievable, actually. I think particularly with, with England making the final, you know, I think that just added a, added another layer of, of, of scrutiny and pressure. It was off the charts, actually. It, it took a long time to actually sit back and, and actually really think about it blow by blow during the course of the day, because as, I, as you've just heard, you know, the, the years in the planning and then two months of relentless, nonstop, every day from six in the morning till midnight, nearly every night of delivering. You're running on empty and you're running on adrenaline. But it is a huge amount of pressure and I genuinely don't remember a huge amount from the time I arrived on site, which was probably just around six in the morning until really we started getting to the back end of the, um, of the innings. 
because that's when it really starts to kick in. The real pressure really starts to ramp up. You know, I think the game Lords had obviously delivered and, and hosted a number of matches already. So, so it was fine tuned in terms of getting the wheels in motion and getting the game on. And that was running perfectly. Everything was going so well. But at the end, that last little bit of the award ceremony, the closing ceremony, the, the staging, the briefing of everybody on the final bit, that last hour, that was the one that was probably the most manic hour of my life um, because I was actually in the in, in the writing room. Um, I'd gone into the writing room to to brief all the all the head honchos, to brief everybody about their role that they were going to play in handing over the trophy and the medals and everything that was going on. But every time I tried to pull them all together to have a conversation with them, something happened out on the field and we we broke for five or ten minutes while everybody watched what was going on on the field. And eventually we ended up with a, a super over. And people go, well, what's the result in a super over? And what happens if there's a – and what happens if it's a tie of the super over? Do we have another super over? And it was just – people were just bombarding you with like, what is the story? What's happening? What's going on? What's going – you know, what happens if this happens? And, it, you know, it was just – it was absolutely mental. But it was it was unbelievable. No, look, you're a high achiever. You also tend to move on very quickly and then focus on the next thing. Did you ever take a moment to sit back and take pride in what you delivered? And with your team, of course, but did you take pride to lead that team? Yeah, I couldn't have been more proud of the team. You know, I think it was one of the, I think it's probably the highlight of the, the back end of that, or the, my, if I want to talk about my career in terms of just that tournament itself, particularly that tournament was probably one of the highlights. At the closing party, I had about, five or six people from the team come to me and say that that was one of the most magnificent teams that they had been involved in, in terms of doing and people had worked on uh, various global tournaments around the world and that they, they love being part of it. And I think we were a, we were a very close knit team. It, it sounds like a lot, 120 odd people, but in actual fact, delivering a tournament of that size, it's pretty small. But, you know, I think we did take time to reflect and look back on it because it was the most amazing tournament. Um, and I think it's uh, it, it was just it was just incredible. But, you know, we did spend some time and you t it took a long time to, to actually get back. And I sat and watched the, the final day from start to finish, which was, you know, it took a number of months to get to that point because we were moving on and COVID hit and I was moving on to the next point. You know, I was then heading up the, the, the COVID response of getting cricket back on in 2021. So it was pretty brutal in terms of a shutdown door and then move on to the next thing. But I think we really had a you know a pre-Christmas party with the with the World Cup team was 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 magnificent to relive some of those moments on the big screen um, at a venue in London. It was it was really uh, it did bring a did bring a tear to the eye. Oh, that's great to hear. Now, look, there's um, more things on your agenda now. You mentioned getting cricket back this year. And of course, there's the 100, a completely new tournament uh, here in the UK. Should we be excited? Yeah, I think we should. Okay, I mean, you know what I mean? I, I think, as I've said to you earlier, you know, that the whole thing about participation for me is essential. And I think anything or any format or that's why sport innovates um, and it's got to move with the times. Um, I've, I've said a number of times that I think the sport is moving on, but as administrators, it has moved on quickly, but as administrators, we not necessarily have. But I think this is moving on pretty quickly and it does. It's going to engage a completely new audience, um, which I think is absolutely essential for the game. It's unique. Uh, you know, I remember being part of a, a three-man team that sat around a table launching the T20 back in South Africa in 2003. And it was incredibly exciting. Exciting. You know, this is 
very similar to that when you're launching a new product and you're bringing it to market. And it is, you know, it's fresh, it's vibrant, it's got international players in it. You know, it's got 16 teams. We've got eight men, eight women played at uh, the women's teams, uh, you know, played at, at eight of the biggest grounds in the country at a prime time in the in the calendar. I think it's going to be it's going to be outstanding and I, I can't wait to see it launched. And uh, we're recording this when we're just coming out of COVID lockdowns, but very gradually. Should we be expecting some good cricket this summer, though, Steve, or do you fear that COVID may get in the way? Um, I certainly hope not, Gavin. I think last year we showed that we could we could get cricket on international cricket, although it was in a truncated format. You know, it was quite short because it was in a three month window, and we concertinaed everything to back to the back end of of the summer and played most of our cricket at at three venues in uh, at uh, AGS Bowl and Emirates Old Trafford, and then yeah, out, out in Derby for for the women's games um, against the West Indies. So this year, I think we you know we've got a really good plan. We've got again we've got four plans um, that we're currently modeling and we've we've worked through the scenarios of each one i think the key is international travel and international team participation and again i can't thank you know the west indies enough for getting on that plane last year to be the first team uh, in you know for us to put on the first international sporting event in the world under covid protocols was just unbelievable and for them to be the team that got on a plane from a covid free country to come to the UK, which was sort of still coming out of its peak, was an incredible achievement and a fantastic commitment to the game. So, you know, I think, again, it's it relies on international teams and the support. But we've seen, you know, England have been in India. Uh, they've been in South Africa. You know, we've had teams across in Australia and New Zealand. So, you know, international participation in COVID environments is, is something that's becoming not the normal, but it's, it's becoming uh, deliverable is probably the best way of putting it. But I think we are, we can, we can expect some incredibly exciting crew. We've got New Zealand, we've got Sri Lanka, we've got Pakistan, we've got India coming, men's, women's cricket. Um, so, um, and a full domestic program, last county championship, 100. So it's a, it's a full season. Fantastic, Steve. What a great place to end on and happy news for many of our listeners who will look forward to those matches. Um, Thank you for being such a fantastic guest. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and I've no doubt our listeners will feel the same. Thank you, Steve Elworthy. Thanks, Gav. It's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Steve is always good company and a great storyteller and I'm really pleased you got to hear some of that in his interview. I'm again joined by Karen White of National and Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK to talk about what we just heard. Welcome back both. Hi guys. Now, when Steve came to London, he was in a really difficult situation. He had a big job, but he didn't really know anyone. And the way he spoke about the need to build a network and was so focused on building advocates really struck a nerve with me. So few think of this as a necessity in a crisis, but it really is, isn't it, Gary? Yeah, and it feels like this is a theme that we return to again and again in this podcast. And the fact that so many of the guests that we speak to highlight the importance of a network speaks for itself. What's telling about Steve's approach is that he didn't wait when he arrived in London, as you say, he immediately began to build that network. Now, we've said it before, but it's one of the most important lessons for organizations. You do not want to be introducing yourself to people in the middle of a crisis. You don't want to be trying to explain your business to someone who is viewing it through the lens of a particular issue. You want the opposite. You want people to view the issue you're experiencing 
through the lens of what they already know about you and your business. So it's well worth putting the effort in all year round to build those connections in media, but also beyond, because you will be glad of it when it counts. Karen, what about you? Yeah, I would agree. You know, I think there's a reason why we call it public relations, isn't there? You know, we spend a lot of our time on the relations side of the business, building those relationships with key stakeholders, understanding those individual groups that have an influence or a stake in your business. I think, you know, meeting those key stakeholders in a time in crisis, that's, it's not ideal. You're not at your best. Your team is under duress. And I don't think people are always on their best behavior either when they're under that level of pressure. And so I think having those pre-existing relationships that are built on trust, it's going to go a long way in help managing the crisis. So just by way of example, so last year, you know, many of us, we were facing a public health crisis, a global pandemic, and it was unlike anything we had ever experienced before. And so we had worked with uh, the Department of Health and their lead communicators on a number of files throughout the year and managed to keep those relationships intact. And so as clients were challenged to understand the rapidly changing rules and landscape, we were able to help them navigate with those decision makers and influencers to get the clarity they needed in order to sustain their operations. Think generally, understanding who are those individuals that matter to your business and continuing to invest and nurture those relationships are critical to crisis communications planning. Absolutely, Karen. And I think what you and Gary have just set out is so important, but it's a dereliction of duty we see repeated over and over and over again that people do not do enough on this when they should be. You know, Having advocates lined up and willing to speak on your behalf when you cannot is the most common hole we all find in crisis planning. It's repeated across every single organization I've ever got involved with. It's not something you can do, as Gary said, in a crisis. It must be done as part of business as usual. And building those advocates who understand your true values as an organization, your management approach and your leadership team's personalities is vital. It makes you a more resilient business and ensure you have the people lined up to fill the vacuum, uh, often caused by legal constraints in a crisis. Steve enjoyed building a new network and a really strong network in London, and it served him so well in good times and bad. Right, that's us finished for this week. Thanks very much to Karen and Gary as ever. Hopefully you've enjoyed listening to this episode of White Swan, the crisis podcast. We'll be back with some more soon. Stay safe. White Swan is brought to you by Hanover Communications and its global crisis network. To find out more, please visit hanovercoms.com. That's Hanover, H-A-N-O-V-E-R, comms, C-O-M-M-S dot com. Music.